Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You are now entering the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, a show that uncovers what's fact, what's fake, and what's fun in the crazy world of Pseudo-Archaeology. Hello and welcome to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 115. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and tonight we revisit the fan non-favorite Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So, what are we doing looking at Indiana Jones for the least of the Indiana Jones franchise. Well, I'll tell you why we're looking at this because Indiana Jones 5 is coming out June 30th. Isn't that crazy? I'm recording this, what, April 23rd or so? So we're looking at two months, man. And what is called Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny will be upon us. Now, this is a smorgasbord of pseudo archaeology fun, these, and I'm not here to talk poorly about Indiana Jones. I am not an archaeologist who hates Indiana Jones. I love Indiana Jones, you guys. I'm sure you've heard me say this other times. I totally dig Indiana Jones. I'm happy that we as a discipline have Harrison Ford as our poster child. That's just great. What, what can be bad about that? And I think we all get, yes, 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 that Indiana Jones is not a real archaeologist as we are today. And that's okay. Because he's fun. I want to go see an Indiana Jones movie. Except for Indiana Jones 4. We'll get to that in a minute. But Indiana Jones 5, The Dial of Destiny, I'm guessing that that has to do with the Antikythera device, which we've gone over in this show in the past. I'm, I'm sort of holding my breath on that one. I'm, I'm hoping that's where they draw from. I don't mind if Indiana Jones draws from a little pseudo-archaeology. But what I do care about is that the movie is well made, right? And as we go through Indiana Jones 4, I want to point out how I think the movie actually wasn't made very well. And why would you bother listening to me talk about movies? Well, I'll tell you why. I was a double major in archaeology and film. That's right. I have a full film major, a full BA in film. And I can tell you that in my experience, actually the film degree was more difficult than the archaeology degree as an undergraduate. Some of those film classes, you guys, were were tough. So I am, you know what? I'm going to tell you, I am proud of my film degree. And when I was Getting my degree, I did the stuff like in archaeology. Some of us went on real excavations and some of us didn't in the movie side of things. Some people 
made movies and some didn't. I was one who did make a student movie. I helped on several student movies and we're talking 16 millimeter film times. I took screenwriting classes and all that kind of good stuff. And I really did enjoy that aspect of, of my college learning experience. Also, I realized that I happened to be a guest recently on the podcast, The Screens of the Stone Age with Joshua Lindell and Dr. Kimberly Plump. And those guys were great. In that podcast, we broke down the movie 2012, right? The disaster movie 2012, the one with John Cusack in it. And doing that, first, it was really fun. I really enjoyed being a part of their podcast and I'll, I'll link to it below. But it reminded me a bit about my film days. And I started to think about that a little bit. And I think having recently seen one of the trailers for Indiana Jones 5, I was like, hey, maybe it's worth it, you know, to to look back. Where was Indiana Jones when we last left him? You know, so I thought that I could use this episode to do a deep dive into Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And I'd really like to kind of go through it and analyze it. And sure, we'll point out the pseudo-archaeology and the background to the pseudo-archaeology that's used in Indiana Jones 4, because there's a lot of it. But I think of more importance, we'll point out where the movie falls short. And I think partially because I was a film major, I always want movies to succeed, you guys. I, I don't like people who are critics just to be critics. You know, I always root for movies to succeed. It takes a lot of money and hard work to make a movie. And honestly, it takes just as much money and hard work to make a crappy movie as it does to make a good movie. So even though I have quite a few negative things to say about Indiana Jones 4, realize behind the scenes I'm always rooting for it. And I will point out things that I think were successful. As we go through this, I think I'll talk about it in the classic three-act fashion, where in the first act, we're sort of intro to the cast of characters, we're intro to the hero, we kind of get an idea for what's up. And then act two is where we meet other allies and enemies, we have a bunch of trials, there's a bunch of complications, that's what takes up most of the movie. Act one is usually the first half an hour, even a little shorter, first 20 minutes. In the moment where you're like, oh, I see where this movie's going. That's usually the end of act one, right? Where they almost announce like, oh, we're going to go on this voyage. You go, oh, okay. Then act two is most of the movie. And then act three is the end. Act three is the resolution. Act three is when you're like, okay, I know how they're going to end this. Or I know what they have to do in order to end this. That's act three. And act three is usually pretty short too. It's like the last 20 minutes. So mostly we're in act two. As we look at this, you'll see that Indiana Jones 4 can be a little tough to follow in terms of the act structure. It's pretty close, but I find that when the switch between Act 1 and Act 2 or Act 2 and Act 3 is kind of soft, that's the indication of a movie that's wanting, you know, that might not be that great to... Compare this to a movie that does do it great, we can think of Star Wars, right? Where act one of Star Wars is largely on Tatooine. We meet Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, 
Act one famously ends when Luke is like, there's nothing for me here now. I want to become a Jedi like my father, right? Right after he sees Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru burn to death. And now we know we're off. We're like, okay, this story is about this young farmer, Luke Skywalker, and he's going to learn. He's going to like go towards becoming a Jedi and the trials and tribulations that go with that. He's going to fight the Empire. So act two is about all that, right? Act two, we meet Han Solo, we're in the cantina, and then we jet off, ultimately coming to the Death Star, we fight our way through the Death Star. And then act three, of course, is when we have a counterattack against the Death Star in the X-Wings, right? And it follows so well. With a great movie like Star Wars, you can see the act breaks, and every scene has a reason to be there. What we'll see in Indiana Jones 4 is a lot of scenes have no reason to be there except to sell amusement park rides, right? But of course, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is not terrible. It's nowhere near the worst movie of all time, which everyone knows is Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Now, when I watched Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in the theater back in 2008, I was not destroyed like my inner child was not brutally murdered like it was while watching The Phantom Menace. But it gave me an overall sinking feeling. You know what I mean? As the minutes ticked away and as I was watching, I was like, oh, no, you know, and again, not terrible, but I do feel it could have been so much better. So when we return, an act-by-act breakdown of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 115. I am Dr. Andrew Kinkella, your host, and we are about to embark on an act-by-act breakdown of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Now, a sign of a movie that's not that great is that it's hard to remember, right? And so when I think back to Indiana Jones 4, I can't really remember it, you know? Now, I did just watch it earlier today for this podcast. I watched it all the way through, right from beginning to end. And there's nothing striking when you rewatch it. It's not like you go, oh my God, what? What's happening? You just remember these sort of limp scenes all over again you go oh yeah oh right you know so it's 
a bad sign when you when you can't remember. Again, if we talk about something like Star Wars, you remember that. You remember exactly how that movie goes because it's structured so well. The movie takes you by the hand through scenes that are needed. One of the reasons why it's so hard to remember parts of Indiana Jones 4 is just there's scenes in there, you guys, that are not needed at all. But with that said, let's start at Act 1 in the beginning. So there is darkness, and then we open on to what? Well, we open on to the Paramount Mountain. You guys know that image, right? That iconic image of the Paramount Movie Corporation in, in blue, right, with the white lettering and the mountain. And this is like a trope that was used in the original Indiana Jones movie in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And in that one, they fade from the Paramount Mountain into a real mountain. At that point, they were in South America, if you remember the very beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, as we go through this movie, you're going to see a bunch of those. They're recalling the other three movies, really, mainly, of course, the first one. They're, they're doing all these little subtle recalls, which actually, I just used that word subtle. That's the completely wrong word to use. They do these overtly over the top, hit you over the head recalls of the past movies. Now, I always tell people who are into analyzing a movie, watch the very first scene, like record in your head the very first scene, because it gives you an idea of how the tone is going to be of the entire movie. And unfortunately, the very first scene in Indiana Jones 4 is the Paramount Mountain fades into a prairie dog house, like a little prairie dog hill, like a like a molehill, you know, and the little prairie dog comes out and looks around and then quickly some 1950s cars zoom on by. But the fact that they needed to put the stupid prairie dog in as the very first scene, it just tells you, oh no, they've screwed up the tone. Now you will hear me hit tone again and again and again because movies that stay to their tone are successful and movies that screw up their tone aren't. Raiders of the Lost Ark has great tone. Everything in that movie makes sense. There's a serious edge to it, but it's a fun, fantastical adventure romp. But it's serious. This movie's not. And that's what kind of destroys it. Now, in terms of the good, as those 50s cars drive by, we immediately know we're in the 1950s. You hear Elvis's hound dog playing on the radio. There's like these teenagers in the, this car, like just sort of happy and laughing. But then they come across like an army convoy, right? And they're in the desert. So already, if you're going 1950s and in desert, you're already thinking maybe atomic testing or something, you know. And to make sure you know, they soon make a turn onto a dirt road where there is an atomic cafe. That's the name of the cafe. It says atomic cafe. So you're like, okay, I get this. And we see that this is a desert army base. I think they say Nevada 1957 on a card on there. And you're like, all right. So although the prairie dog is highly stupid and awful. The rest is really great. Again, this is like Steven Spielberg. You know, I think the guy knows movie making. Now, as you get to the army checkpoint, all of a sudden you realize that the army men in the trucks are, are fake. They're like Russians, you know, and they murder all the 
real United States Army men at the Army checkpoint and they go in and you're like, OK, this is what's going on. Right. We're off already. We we understand what's happening. They pull up to like a large, large storage area, like a large storage building. Huge. And then the trunk of one of the cars opens. And first they take out some guy who you don't know who he is, who's going to end up being one of the supporting characters, which is a terrible move because you'll never guess who they should have taken out first. Yes, the person who they took out second, Indiana Jones. So they take Indiana Jones out of the trunk second. (laughs) Sorry to laugh. I'm like, come on, Steven Spielberg, you know this. And then... Of course, his hat, they throw his hat out first to the trunk and then he bends down to pick his hat up and we get the sort of music sting of Indiana Jones. Now, they are going to continue to use the hat thing. I forget at least three times. We remember that Indiana Jones famously had to scrabble for his hat when he had to grab it right before the huge door went shut in the original Raiders of the Lost Ark. That is an iconic scene. They call back to it in the first like three minutes of the movie, but then they call back again and again. And it's like, you guys don't do that. You know, it, it just, it tests our patience. You can do that one time, but not three, you know? So the Russians are the bad guys. And then as we go into this, large storage area it has huge number 51 on it right area 51 and there's boxes in there labeled roswell right so we know in terms of pseudo archaeology we're like okay they're gonna do the aliens thing this is area 51 right we're we're all there with it and we then find out that indiana jones has found something 10 years back that is important to the evil Russians, right? This is the bad Cold War Russians headed by Kate Blanchett, who does a great turn as the bad guy Russian lady, right? And I will say, as I take these twists and turns with you in Indiana Jones 4, that the acting's great. All the actors did a great job. Right. There's not a weak one in the bunch, but what are they going to do? They got a script that's very difficult to make come alive. So I am not blaming them at all. They all did great. Even Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf is going to come in later as Indiana Jones's kid. And Shia LaBeouf got some flack for this movie. But, dude, he did fine. He did a great job. I saw him once, actually, in a in an office. He was walking out right as I was walking in. He's physically like a really small guy. And just. His physicality, that's a difficult casting, you know, if you're physically very slight and you're sort of cast in what's supposed to be kind of a macho swashbuckling role. But in terms of acting, I thought he did great. And if you don't believe that he's a great actor, watch Peanut Butter Falcon. I hope that you guys, if you take anything from this podcast, you know, watch Peanut Butter Falcon. It's an excellent movie. Just came out a handful of years ago. Sheila Buff's in it. I really my daughter and I both watch it. It's one of our faves. Anyway. Here they are in Area 51. Okay, it's all aliens, right? There's a magnetic coffin in there. Indiana Jones goes and finds it. They open it up. There's an alien arm in there. So, you know, 10 minutes in, and it's the whole body, right? They cut it open, and you realize this is an alien. We're not like, oh, maybe it's aliens. We're like, yes, definitely aliens. So already, 
the tone of this movie is that there are aliens that is a thing that that we need to know is real in this world. Now, that's not a bad thing. And I know you're like, Andrew Kinkella hosted the Pseudo Archaeology podcast. How can you say that's not a bad thing? Because it's a movie, right? I got no problem with a movie using something as dynamic and odd and strange as Crystal Skulls, right? I'm just pissed when they put it on the History Channel. There's a big difference there. So anyway, of course, after Indiana Jones finds the alien, shows them this this, uh, magnetic coffin full of this this alien, there's going to be a chase, right? Indiana Jones has to try and get out of there. And this is where the movie also starts to fall flat. It becomes super high concept. Indiana Jones like swings through on some wire or something through the storage area. There's like 20 Russian soldiers with automatic machine guns. None of them hit him. It just, this is one of those moments where immediately in act one of the movie, I was like, oh man, you know, don't have that many Russian soldiers there in the first part, right? Don't, there's no need for Indiana Jones to do some high concept swing on some wiring that he could, would never work or on a rope or something like it just, it was completely unreal. Right. And then he gets on this rocket propelled thing. It's obviously like a rocket tester and he gets propelled out of the storage place. And then of course, when the rocket's done, he does like a wacky Pratt fall off of it. Why they have to do wackiness in the middle of a movie that's supposed to have some sort of seriousness in the tone. I don't know. Then, of course, he comes across this city when he's trying to escape. This little town walks in and he realizes this is a fake town for an atomic bomb test. Now, the atomic bomb is going to go off in like 60 seconds. So it's like, oh, my God. And he jumps into a refrigerator. And this is the famous horrendous fridge scene where an atomic bomb goes off. But then since Indiana Jones is in a refrigerator that gets like rocketed several miles away through the air and then crashes to the ground, he's magically fine. This was so bad that if you guys know the term jump the shark, which is used meaning when a movie kind of loses its reality or when it's super lazy or where they have no ideas left, It comes from Happy Days. I won't get into it, but the TV show Happy Days. There was a movement where people started to say nuke the fridge. Like this movie has really nuked the fridge, meaning the same thing. Luckily for Indiana Jones, that terminology has kind of gone by the wayside. People still use jump the shark instead. But it was a real low point for the movie. Just unbelievable. And then as soon as he gets out, there's a stupid Go for there again, right? The like prairie dog again. Why? It's horrible humor, which is not humor. <laughs> but three seconds after that, Indiana Jones stands up, and you have an iconic scene where Indiana Jones looks up to see a mushroom cloud. And it's like Indiana Jones has entered the atomic age. Just with a scene, no dialogue, it looked incredible. 
right? But it was ruined by the setup. Anyway, Indiana Jones ultimately gets back to school. You always have to have that sort of school scene. You know, we learn that he's he's basically going to be fired, right? He's back at school. He's going to be fired for for this these things things that he's done. Of course, we're still in Act One, just barely, right? We, we sort of don't know where we're going. This sort of mini movie has already happened. For those of you who watch James Bond, James Bond does this all the time too, where it, the first act has a lot of some sort of leftover adventure. Like you're just seeing the very end of a previous adventure, right? Which is, which is fun, which is a trope, which it's, it's fine that Indiana Jones does this. But anyway, that's over. The movie kind of has a little bit of a slow part. Uh, Indiana Jones is going to be fired. He doesn't really know what to do. Gets on a train. But then he runs into this biker kid named Mutt, who is... Of course, going to be Indiana Jones's son. We're going to figure that out later. But they have a little meeting in a cafe. They start to talk. Mutt brings up the Mitchell Hedges skull. We already did that skull on a previous edition of this very own pseudo-archaeology podcast, right? Where I talked about the crystal skull of Belize. It's that skull. So we learn that one of Indiana Jones's old friends named Oxley was looking for that and has now basically disappeared. And this kid, Mutt, his mom is missing, whose name is Marion. And somehow, this is another weak point in the script, somehow Indiana Jones is supposed to be like Marion. I don't know. Never heard that one before. He actually says like, oh, I've heard a lot of Marys in my time. It's like, dude, what about the most iconic female in all of Indiana Jones movies? No, doesn't re- you're not even going to, Make that connection now. It's weird, right? He should definitely have not said that name. It makes all of us go, oh, Marion Ravenwood's going to be in this. We all know, except for Indiana Jones, he must be really stupid, right? It's, why does my precious Indiana Jones have to get destroyed like this? So anyway, they, they have a little fight there. They get out of there. And right at the sort of end of act one, we, we see that, the kid actually has some papers, which are almost like a map or a series of clues towards where Indiana Jones needs to go and what he needs to find in order to save these people. So now we know where we're going, right? Which is great. And, and now we're going to shift into act two because now we know, okay, this movie's going to be about Indiana Jones and this kid going to this place to try and find the stuff to try and save these people. Done. We're going to cap this off with a motorcycle chase, which I really liked. Of all the chase scenes in here, the motorcycle chase scene is by far the best. Why? Because it's real. It seems reasonable in our world. It looks like it's largely not done with CGI. It's just cool motorcycle chase scene done with real stunt people. And it's awesome. Simple, exciting, fun. Even though I just prattled on about the tone and that I hate all these little side jokes that suck. There was a moment where they're in the library at the end of the motorcycle scene. And one of the students asked Indiana Jones something and Indiana Jones says, you know, if you're a good archeologist, you'll get out of the library, which I thought was a fair ball it's right on the edge. But I thought that was fair for one of those side comments. If that was the only one and there weren't all the other terrible ones, I thought that would be, that would be fine. But that was great. And then at that point, we're going to get into a plane. 
and we're going to have the awesome red line trace the map to where we're going, which in this case is going to be Peru. And we're going to pick that up with Act 2 on the other side. All right, welcome back to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, episode 115. And we are talking about Indiana Jones 4, and we just went over Act 1. Let's go onward to Act 2 and Act 3, and then some final thoughts. Anyway, when we last left our intrepid explorers, Indiana Jones and his kid Mutt are on an airplane doing that awesome, iconic red line trace from the United States down in this point to Peru. Now, at this point, they go to Nazca, where the Nazca lines are. And of course, they make connections to aliens and the Nazca lines, which for this movie is fine. But again, not for academics. And we're looking for a grave of a conquistador who is going to have something that we need for in order to move the plot forward, right? So we have some deals with scorpions. There's always going to be some sort of uncomfortable uh, natural creatures, and there'll be more later. But ultimately, we see this elongated skull, right? We're in the, the tomb of like the main conquistador. And of course, we just tear into that. You know, it's Indiana Jones. I, I'm not going to do that whole like, I can't believe he did that. Real archaeologists wouldn't do that. Of course, they wouldn't. But it's fun. It's an adventure story. Get over it. You know, so we're going to we're going to rip right in to the conquistador's tomb. Yeah, <laughs> screw it. Right. We're going to grab his gold mask off his face. We're going to grab some gold doubloons behind him. There is this elongated crystal skull, which is magnetic. Right. And Indiana Jones says things like there's no tool marks on it and this could not be possibly made with today's technology. The exact same stuff that pseudo-archaeologists today always say. Again, fine for Indiana Jones to say it. Not for real people. So then, unfortunately, I think this part, since we're in Act 2, right, we're just we're sort of having trials and tribulations. I think most of us have forgotten most of Act 2. Because it gets kind of convoluted and weird. The idea in the story is that Oxley, his friend who they're in search of, had, had already found this, but put it back. And you're like, why? What? But they take it out again. And the scene kind of ends with his evil friend, Mac, the guy who was originally in the car trunk with him. It's one of his old friends from previous adventures. But we see that Mac is working for the Russians. He's a bad guy, right? And we're then taken to this camp in the jungle, this like Russian camp. And we meet the friend Oxley, played by, of, of course, John Hurt, who's called in to save every movie ever. He died fairly recently, which is sad, but he plays this crazy guy who, honestly, I thought as a character, this is nothing against John Hurt. Again, all the actors in this are great, was worthless there was no reason to have this guy he was just along to kind of give weird clues because he's like out of his mind he could have been replaced by a book he could have been replaced by a couple extra pages that mutt had earlier to give to indiana jones right and then we have indiana jones strapped into a chair and then he has to stare into the eyes of the crystal skull 
And we've heard this before, too. That's what the pseudo-archaeologists will say, like, oh, it has an eerie glow. It affects people, right? So obviously the screenwriters just used every pseudo-archaeology trope in this. If you stare too long into its eyes, which Indiana Jones, of course, does. And then he kind of like passes out at the end because it's like too much for his brain. But then in the most obvious reveal of all time, we meet Marion Ravenwood again. Karen Allen herself is back for Indiana Jones 4. And I'm bummed because they largely sort of wasted her. They should have angled more to her gravelly toughness, which is what we all love. And she became kind of poppy and and sort of smiley. And I don't think it was going with the character. So we meet her in just this lighthearted. Again, you're in a Russian like secret camp with with a bunch of soldiers with with guns and stuff and you're torturing people, but we meet Marion Ravenwood again. And then we have like a wacky sitcom with her and Harrison Ford, like, Oh, Hey, been a long time. You know, that, that kind of silly crap, which is, which makes it so weak. Wouldn't you love if Indiana Jones had like gone into a side tent that was dark and with shades of Raiders of the Lost Ark when he found Karen Allen in the desert tent? goes in there and like she's she's tied up but she's really like energy listened depressed and he's just like marion like you could hear it you could hear harrison ford just go oh my god marion you know like it just it would have been so good but they they ruined it they they i can't believe they let that go it was just some cheesy ass like sitcom interaction and then of course they have to run out of there they get caught in quicksand the salt the whole scene is stupid it's lazy writing it's embarrassing they could have cut the whole thing like why have this quicksand scene in where they're just sort of joking with each other and i'm like i thought this was supposed to be deadly i don't know and this kind of brings me to another point where i do think there's a great movie in indiana jones 4 but it's like an hour and 10 minutes long. You know, I wish somebody would do a fan cut of this and just cut out all the schlock. I think you could do it and have something really nice. But, you know, it's funny thinking back. I thought Indiana Jones 4 was like two and a half hours long, at least. You guys, it's actually slightly less than two hours long. It's like an hour 58 or something like that. Or write it to It plays very slow, which is another terrible sign of a movie that's not working very well anyway after the horrible quicksand scene they get back on the truck and there's like the world's longest car truck chase where uh there's just a million machine guns and and at this point marion and mutt and harrison ford they're like all together right there's just a mass of people and evil Kate Blanchett is after them. They're they're chasing. It's super long. It feels super CG. It's like the opposite of the motorcycle scene. It feels totally fake and just totally pushed and gimmicky. And it totally feels like, oh, you're just doing this in order to make sure you can make a new ride at Disneyland. It feels like a commercial for an amusement park ride, right? It's just... I guarantee. And it feels like it was written by committee. You know, this is not a serious story, which is such a bummer. It could have been so good. So you're on the world's longest chase. At one point, Mutt swings up in the trees on vines with a bunch of monkeys. 
It's like horrible. It almost looks Spider-Man-esque. It's weird. It, it takes us totally out of the tone. There's a completely deadly crash at the end where they all just like scuff off the dirt off their shoulders and get out. Like it makes no sense. You have these two cars just like slam into each other and everyone's fine. It's like, what? And then they keep going. Like right when you're done, you're like, thank God that car chase that was too long is over. Then they have a bunch of huge red ants that are now chasing them. And at this point, this is just utterly fake. It has nothing to do with the plot. It's not moving us on at all. It's a waste of our time, right? It's the opposite of something like Star Wars, where every scene is building. The the red ant thing is terrible, right? They do the hat joke again in there. And now the car with the heroes in it, which is actually half boat, half car. And you're like, oh man, when are we gonna use this as a boat? They fall off a precariously huge cliff and then go into a series of three waterfalls, which are forewarned by Oxley. You know, he's like, there shall be three or something like that. But they go down every three and it's like, oh, my God. Okay, so I see you're selling a water ride at an amusement park, right? It's really. You guys, it's really cynical, right? And that's. Probably what bums me out the most about this movie is there's a cynicism to it of like, we are just going to sell you bargain basement schlock and you're going to like it. And you know what? The critics on Rotten Tomatoes, the average is like a 77. And I'm like, how dare you? The uh, audience response is like a 53, which is much more reasonable. That's about where I would say this should land. It's not very good. But critics, I saw people giving this like, like, I think Roger Ebert gave three and a half out of four stars. Are you kidding? Come on, man. So after they magically survived these huge waterfalls that would kill anyone, that now you're, you're out of act two and they finally find like the final cave where they're going to go in. And you know, you're into act three now because you're like, okay, what I know is they have to go into this cave. They have to deal with the crystal skull that they have that they've sort of taken this whole way they need to put it in the right place and like order will be restored or you know because we've we found marion we found oxley okay we're in act three which takes place in this this cave place they go into this cave more stuff on aliens all the sort of cliche you know alien stuff ah this ancient culture was taught farming by this alien race right Whatever. And, and you see images that are painted on the walls of this, this cave. And even though they're in the Amazon, it's all very Maya, right? They kind of have Maya hieroglyphics. It's Maya style. So what the set designers did is they've taken ancient Maya symbolism and they've brought it into the wrong place in the world by a little bit. Right. And then just said, hey, this is this is what you get. Right. There are, as they're cruising through this cave, there's some secret warriors that basically break out of the sides of the cave and they're dressed as vaguely Maya warriors that are kind of out to get them. But then they pop out on the other side of this cave and, and you realize you're in this huge like hole or bowl or almost a huge sinkhole, like a massive, massive sinkhole that's like a mile across in the middle of the jungle somehow, like a lost world thing, right? Somehow hidden from us. So in this lost world, there's Maya pyramids and all this kind of stuff. And so we're running away again from these, these warriors. 
And we finally get to the most inner sanctum. There's like this inner sanctum ritual space where you know that the crystal skull is supposed to go. And inside there are treasures from all around the world. The idea is that these ancient aliens were also collectors of different things from around the world. At one point, Harrison Ford says they were archaeologists, right? <laughs> Whatever. So they get in there. Of course, the bad people are hot on their tail. They get caught yet again by evil Kate Blanchett and Mac, who Mac was against them. Then he was their friend. Then he's against them in the end. And at one point, he said he was a double agent. Then Indiana Jones says, no, you're a triple agent. Then Max says, no, I just lied about the double agent thing. Again, another character that was like not needed. You could cut out Mac and you could cut out Oxley and be better off. And nothing against the actors. It's just the story sucks with them in it. So as bad lady Kate Blanchett takes all the stuff, she's going to now utilize the skull for evil. Of course, the skull's put in the right spot, and then the aliens are, like, re-energized. And then Kate Blanchett is going to have all their knowledge go into her head. And we see this a million miles away. Kate Blanchett, it's too much for Kate Blanchett's brain. And Kate Blanchett, like, lights on fire and explodes. Because it's just too, it's too much for the human brain, right? This alien knowledge. We learn that they aren't really aliens but more specifically, they are interdimensional be beings, right? Here, I'll say that again for you since I messed it up. They are intergenerational beings. There you go. Isn't that exciting? And then now that the interdimensional beings are complete because of the crystal skull, <laughs> now they can take off. And by take off, I mean that that entire like mile-wide sinkhole is actually where an alien spacecraft has landed. So the alien spacecraft starts to slowly shake. And now our heroes have to get out of this cave, which is actually like the inside of the spaceship. They got to run out. They get into this well that is like filling with water. And luckily they're in there and they get like shot out of this well uh, back to safety. They get to the edge of this huge sinkhole and they're there with enough time to watch the alien spacecraft break out of the soil of the Amazon and spin, 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 and then disappear into the ether, into the cosmos, right? And whew, there you go. Order is restored. There's one more scene, which is, of course, the wedding scene. But right before that, we find that the rest of the order has been restored, too, because Indiana Jones has gotten his job back except he is now an associate dean. Oh, how dare he? Now, I know that we're not talking about Star Wars, but in this movie, Harrison Ford went to the dark side. A dean, Indiana Jones, the administrator. I'm sure Indiana Jones's next step is to get an EDD. Oh, now that's only harsh for those of us in academia. For the rest of you, you probably didn't notice and you were just happy he got his job back. So then there's the final wedding scene. And we have, hey, Indiana Jones gets married. His son, Mutt, is there. The hat joke is done yet again. 
and Mutt is sort of picking it up. But Indiana Jones swipes it back from him to say, hey, the story of Indiana Jones is not over yet. And then we march out of the church, listening to the Indiana Jones march, which even when it's put on something lame like that is still so great. So what do I think of this movie? I think you guys get it. You know, I'm not a huge fan. I think it's actually pretty terrible. And I think it's I think it's sad in its cynicism that they just made this thing to make money. And they did. It reminds me of when I reviewed 2012 on the other podcast. It was a cynical money grab because at about that time, 2012 came out in 2009. This comes out a year before in 2008. You're seeing an expansion of like the international market where I think this movie costs like 170 million to make something like that, something really high. But it made like 700 million. It made way more, but over half of that was international sales. So what Hollywood learned is you just make movies that just have a lot of explosions that have like no real specifics in them, you know, that just sort of are fun to watch on a screen. So special effects kind of trump anything else. And then that equals make money in international market. I mean, it barring the actors, which were great, the movie, I think, largely fails. You know, it's unbelievable. Feels like it was written by a committee. There's a strange lack of close-ups. That's one thing I really noticed that, that I think makes us feel like we're not part of it because we want to see the actors faces we want to zoom in and see we want to zoom in and see indiana jones's face and marion's face when they first see each other again we want to see that tension we want to see that emotion and we don't we just get forty thousand explosions instead you know two hours feels like three the fact that even going through this even telling you guys about it right now i was still on the edge of forgetting scenes and stuff because it's so weakly strung together it there are entire scenes like the quicksand scene like the red ant scene which have no reason being there they don't push the plot forward at all it has the terrible unfunny humor i hate that i probably if i had to pick one thing that might be it you know not not to compare this too closely with the phantom menace because that is truly awful But they both do the same thing of they actively destroy their own tone for the sake of a terrible joke. Why do that? Why have a prairie dog pop its head out? Why see Indiana Jones's hat blow away for like the 20th time? You know, why why have these fight scenes or chase scenes that go on way, way, way too long? You know, why do all that stuff? I don't know. You're catching me at a low point, you know, if they could just hit that tone again, you know, for Indiana Jones five coming out, I'm I'm hoping that they can recapture the tone of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And actually, I'll say that Indiana Jones three last crusade, I think, was pretty successful, too. I think one and three are both pretty damn good. Obviously, one is iconic, but I think three hangs in there, barring one or two terrible moments. 
you know, but they just double down on the terrible moments on this. I hope that they can be more serious. And I can't believe it's somebody like me saying that. I mean, can you? You're like, can Kel is telling you to be more serious? Oh, man. (laughs) Because, I mean, I like lighthearted things, but it's got to hit its tone, you guys. And it just... It just doesn't. Here's what I want out of Indiana Jones 5, right? I want serious tone, but you can still have high concept as long as you take it seriously, right? And in terms of, do I think that Indiana Jones 5 can be that? My answer is yes. I'm guardedly optimistic, right? And It's no secret that whatever they make, you know, I'm going to watch it. I love Indiana Jones. I love Harrison Ford. I mean, the reason I'm sitting here right now talking to you in this podcast, or I should say talking to you in this podcast as an archaeologist with a PhD, I'm going to give 17% of that to Indiana Jones watching that when I was like 11. You know, it just... It's cool. But ultimately, the Kinkella movie ranking score, two stars out of five. They should have known better. And with that, I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. Please like and subscribe wherever you like and subscribe. And if you have questions for me, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, Feel free to reach out using the links below or go to my YouTube channel, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology. See you guys next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.